My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the May edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to cover relates to the power of big data to improve patient care in gastroenterology. There's been an explosion in the availability and accessibility of big data, and with it comes the obligation to maximise its potential impact to improve healthcare. This is across multiple domains, including diagnostic algorithms, treatment efficacy, disease prevention, and healthcare delivery. In a comprehensive review in this issue, Catlow and colleagues discuss this. Big data analysis complements traditional research methodology. Collection, curation, and linking of data sets is challenging. Artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms can improve diagnostics, treatment stratification, and thereby outcome. The authors consider these different themes in detail, including summarising their definitions. The multiple sources of data are discussed, including the strengths and weaknesses of different data sets. This includes discussion of the risk of bias, A larger sample can improve precision, although it doesn't automatically reduce bias or sampling error. This is neatly shown in figure two. The potential to impact on healthcare is massive. The authors highlight the fact that real-world data needs good data curation and an understanding of the clinical context, and that we need to engage with our patients so they understand how we are using their data to improve healthcare. Essential Reading and Editor's Choice this month. The second article reviews the JAG consensus statements for training and certification in esophago-gastro-duodenoscopy. Training and quality insurance in esophago-gastro-duodenoscopy are, we all agree, important to ensure competent practice. In this issue, Xiao and colleagues report a national evidence-based review to update and develop standards and recommendations for training and certification. This used a modified Delphi process with stakeholder representation under the oversight of the Joint Advisory Group on Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. In summary, there were 32 recommendations made around the definition of competence, acquisition of competence, assessment of competence, and post-certification support. The consensus process led to the following certification criteria. Firstly, performing more than 250 hands-on procedures. Secondly, attending a JAG-accredited basic skills course. And thirdly, attainment of relevant minimal performance standards defined by the British Society of Gastroenterology, in conjunction with the Association of Upper Gastrointestinal Surgeons of Great Britain and Ireland. Fourthly, achieving physically unassisted D2 intubation and G manoeuvre in greater than 95% of procedures. And finally, satisfactory performance in formative and summative direct observation of procedural skills assessments. This is summarised neatly in figure one in the paper. The intent is to drive up quality. There's an excellent accompanying commentary, improving quality in upper gastrointestinal endoscopy. The third article relates to the training pathway for small bowel capsule endoscopy in the UK. 
There is an ongoing significant increase in the demand for small bowel capsule endoscopy in the UK. In this issue, Ty and colleagues summarised a 12-month training and accreditation programme endorsed by the Joint Advisory Group on Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. Further detail is available on the website, which is referenced in the paper. In summary, the training is delivered using JAG-accredited courses and an electronic learning module. There's a knowledge-based assessment. A minimum of 50 small bowel capsule endoscopies should be read in tandem with a local trainer. And proficiency is documented using direct observation of procedural skills assessments relating to capsule procedure, capsule reporting. These are formative, then summative. The training looks practical and is reasonable to achieve. The structured approach is helpful and necessary to ensure standardisation of the procedure and reporting so that we can best use small bowel capsule endoscopy to improve diagnosis and outcome for our patients. The fourth article is a curriculum-based clinical review on the investigation and management of dysphagia. Dysphagia is common. It's a common presentation in gastroenterology. In this excellent curriculum-based clinical review, Nigam and colleagues discuss the key issues for assessment and management. This includes a comprehensive summary of the anatomy and physiology, strategy for clinical assessment, differential diagnosis and further investigation. There's a nice algorithm for assessment which starts with consideration of the anatomical location, oropharyngeal, globus or esophageal with esophageal then split into structural and motility, then intermittent versus progressive. I learned a lot just working through this. Investigations are discussed, including when manometry and endoscopy might be helpful. The different treatment options are considered, including diet, pharmacology, endoscopic interventions and surgery. This review is comprehensive and complete. There's an excellent linked podcast and it's really relevant to anyone practicing in gastroenterology and well worth reading. The final article I'd like to highlight is the write-up of the Twitter debate controversies in liver transplantation. I've been very pleased with the response to the Twitter debates and I'm very grateful to Philip Smith, social media editor, the trainee editorial team and the participants for the considerable time and effort put into this. There are always a few nuggets to report. In this issue, Oliver Taverby and colleagues summarised the debate on the controversies in transplantation. It's a great read. A few key points are listed. There's no six-month abstinence rule for patients with alcohol-related liver disease in the UK. Cannabis use is not an absolute contraindication for referral for transplant assessment. Whether a new transplant centre should be a UK funding priority is currently debatable. The advent of machine perfusion will increase the number of available grafts for transplantation. Pregnancy is possible for patients post-transplant and it should be discussed on a case-by-case basis. Great topics with nice summaries and well worth reading through. Please continue to engage in the debates. Suggestions for topics are always welcome. Please enjoy this issue. Please continue to read and join feedback on the journal. Follow us on Twitter and listen to our regular podcasts 
accessed via the journal website. I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. Thanks for listening.